On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. James Arcadi and Dr. J.T. Turner about analytic theology. So we cover topics like what is analytic theology and what are the most common and potentially serious objections to it? Do they hold water or not? And then we consider what's the most interesting work going on in analytic theology right now? If someone wanted to start learning about analytic theology and analytic philosophy, where should they start? And then we ask, how does analytic theology really impact the pastor and the local church member? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or questions for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that is devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think, we want to think well. And so in an effort to do that, we've tried to seek to create a, an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And today I have the distinct pleasure to reintroduce our faithful listeners and introduce maybe for the first time some of our new listeners to Dr. J.T. Turner and Dr. James Arcadi. We're going to talk overall just about analytic theology in general. I think there, I see, at least on the internet, there are a lot of charges leveled against analytic theology. So I think we plan to address some of those as well as just talk about this awesome book that they edited that just came out. It's called the T&T Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. And it is, I think, really fantastic. It's got some awesome, unique chapters. It covers, I mean, a ton of ground. You've got 37 chapters in here. You've got everything from prayer and analytic theology and liturgy to providence, the Trinity, incarnation. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's even, isn't it faith, Paul? Yeah, analytic theology and animals. So uh, what a unique subject area you've got in here as well it's just it's just a fantastic book i I think some of our listeners are probably going to go look this up and they're going to say man i can't afford 175 bucks or whatever it is so i don't know if you guys have any recommendations before i let you introduce yourself but what i usually tell people if you can't afford it you probably have a library that can so why don't you tell your library hey make sure to pick this book up so number one, you're going to support these guys. And number two, uh, you're going to have great resources in your library that other people can have access to and get. So if a book's really expensive, that's what I'd usually tell people. Just have your library buy it because they've got a budget for that kind of stuff. And if you ask them, they'll usually do it. So before we get into all of it, maybe we'll start. JT, you can start. Then James, you can introduce yourselves and then we'll we'll go ahead and kick it off. Yeah, thanks, Jordan and Brandon, for having both of us on. Uh, this is one of those times where I wish um, everybody could see the interview because Jordan was helpfully showing the book to the camera. And of course, we're on a podcast and nobody will see it. Uh, but yeah, you should definitely look it up because it's got a great cover uh, written by or drawn and uh, designed by a friend of James's um, uh, for the cover artwork. In any case, uh, my name is JT Turner. I'm also a James, but I'm not the James involved here. Uh, I am an assistant professor of philosophy at Anderson University in South Carolina. I teach uh, philosophy, I teach theology, and really my area of specialty is analytic theology. Surprise, surprise. And uh, I'm James Arcadi. I teach theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Um, teach core classes in theology, various doctrines, systematic theology, um, uh, like JT, work on what we might call analytic theology. But I tend to think of myself mostly as a systematic theologian who uses uh, philosophy when when I think it might be helpful to the theological task. Uh, doctrinally, I've written on the doctrine of the Eucharist, a um, bit on God's omnipresence, currently working on a book on holiness, and um, maybe starting to think a little bit about theological anthropology. So a lot of the conversations JT and I have had about the nature of humans are uh, might find themselves in uh, publication down the road. So that's a bit of what I do. Awesome. So I'll tell you guys, you can go to Anderson for undergrad, and then you can go do your graduate at TEDS. Yes, Anderson <laughs> in South Carolina, mind you, not the Anderson in Indiana. Okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So I, I would ask you to start with a definition, but I get roasted on Twitter for saying, let's start with a definition. So maybe I will ask you, what do you mean when you say analytic theology? And then also as maybe like part two of that question, 
talk about like some of the, the the spectrum of theological commitment. So I think because I think some people think analytic theology like kind of resides with a particular um, theological position um, or maybe a denomination or something. But um, talk talk to what it is and then the different spectrum of theological commitments that um, you can have and bring to the table and still be doing good analytic theology. Father Jim, you want this one? <laughs> I, I think I tend to take a bit more of uh, what I might call a deflationary account to analytic theology. That is, um, well, one, I, I, I think, and this is something I wrote in the introduction, I, I think that theology is always being done in conversation with philosophy of, of some stripe or another. And, and you see this across the whole history of the church's theological reflection that um, you know, whether it's uh, Neoplatonism or Aristotelianism or humanism or Hegelianism, there's some kind of philosophy that's in dialogue with theology. Analytic theology is just a way of doing that same kind of dialogue, but using a particular philosophical approach or school or methodology, which is analytic uh, philosophy. And in, in that regard, I don't see analytic theology personally as being um, relegated or, or, or narrowed to any particular Christian denomination or tradition or even Christianity. We don't have this in our book because we were focusing in on Christian systematic theology as our kind of ordering principle. But, you know, one could do sort of a quote unquote analytic theology from a Jewish perspective or a Muslim perspective or, or what have you. Uh, it's just that in this book, we were, uh, you know, with a limited amount of space, we were focusing in on uh, Christian systematic theological topics um, but from a more um, philosophical perspective and um, analytic philosophical perspective. And we do have, I think we have a, a number of denominations and traditions represented in here from Reformed and, and, and Wesleyan and Roman Catholic and Anglican and Baptistic and, and et cetera. So I, I think we've got a good cross-section cross of a number of different traditions. I don't know if you want to add to that, JT. Uh one thing I would want to say is just one of the reasons, maybe a driving reason why we limited it to Christian theology is that, you know, James and I's specialty is Christian theology and not some other kind. That doesn't mean that the other kinds aren't uh, academically viable. Surely they are, but uh, we probably wouldn't have been the best editors for like an Islamic analytic theology or what have you. And maybe, and you might think too, just in terms of how the analytic theology sort of trajectory has gone, if you want to like point to the mid 20th century with folks like Alvin Plantinga or um, Basil Mitchell, or even on up through Swinburne, you know, it's just been that it's been mostly Christian philosophers and Christian theologians who have been doing this sort of like um, philosophical approach to various theological top topics. And so perhaps the time is ripe for a a, a handbook on Christian systematic theology from an analytic perspective and might take a bit more time before other um, traditions or other ecclesial uh, or uh, faith communities get their their handbooks down the road. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned, how there's so many, I guess, denominational aspects represented in analytic theology. To me, that, that seems like a, a good thing. Right. We, we've got this almost like an ecumenical consensus that, hey, this is a good mode of doing theology. But I think there are some others who say, well, that looks like a bad thing to me. Why would I want to have Islamic as analytic theology? I'm a Christian. I think they're wrong. So I don't want to over. I know we've got some questions just talking about com most common objections to analytic theology, serious objections. I don't want to spend the entire interview talking about that. But I do think at least for our listeners, there's a good segment that are skeptical, I think, of analytic theology. So I do want to address some of these questions, and you brought it up. So I'm just curious what your what your thoughts are on that. Um, so I suppose I understand the worry a little bit of if you if one's a Christian, you know, not really caring about. Um, you know, reading or researching in, you know, maybe strictly Jewish or Islamic or Hindu or whatever analytic theology. But um, I, I'm not so sure that there's anything involved in just analytic theology as such that means it is any more open to other faith traditions than just regular old theologies. I mean, anytime you're doing any kind of thinking about God or God's or whatever it is you think there is, um, well, inevitably some other religious tradition come in can come into the equation. So, yeah, I don't see that there's anything um, necessarily or 
even essentially loca located within analytic theology as a discipline that makes it especially vulnerable to that problem if it is one. Now, I don't think it is a problem because I I think um, uh, I mean at, at all as I because as I mentioned earlier in my mention about um, the goods of Jewish or Islamic theology, like I think they are viable academic projects. I mean, I don't think they give us um, the final um, revelations of truth, let's say. Uh, but that's not to say they're not worth investigating or thinking about. I mean, I'm not spending my time doing that because that's not my area of expertise and I'm a Christian and I want to spend more time thinking about Christian theology, but I don't think it doesn't belong in the academic world or something like that. And maybe if I could just add on the kind of more intra-Christian um, aspect of the conversation, um, I would like to think that the, one of the, uh, the benefits of the appeals of analytic theology is its utility as an, an ecumenical um, sort of venue. Um, and, and I think that there's almost kind of like a, a lingua franca that can be had by the sort of philosophical dialogue, the logical analysis, what have you, that could actually allow Christians from different theological traditions to have more exchange, more conversation with one another than sometimes happens. You know, sometimes, um, you know, reformed folk just get locked up in an intra interpretation of Calvin or sometimes, you know, uh, 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 Wesleyans just get, you know, it, it locked up in an intra Wesleyan dialogue about uh, about interpretation of Wesley or, or, or what have you. But I think that um, sometimes you can have kind of mediating tools or mediating domains which can bring together people from different theological perspectives to actually have a shared conversation um, you know, uh, about what the real differences are and what the real sort of conflicts are. And I, I would hope that the analytic philosophical venue can, can provide a little bit of that, of that, uh, that domain. Yeah. At least from my experience, it seems to definitely do that. It seems that there's almost like in some theological traditions, when you're talking about areas of disagreement, it's almost like you're like a nine out of 10 on the tension level, mm. um, where there's just a lot of pressure. It seems like analytic theology is dialed back a little bit where, yeah, people are serious about what they think and serious about what they believe, but there's almost this sense of, yeah, but we can be friends and go hang out afterwards, even though we completely disagree with each other. I don't know why that culture exists, but it seems to be something that is there. And I think that that's a healthy posture. I mean, is it something I, to do with analytic theology specific that's doing that? Or is it something else? Brandon, you going to say something? I don't want to. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think, I think it's a, a healthy way. Uh, you know, if, if, if theologians from different denominations and, and traditions can agree on this mode of doing theology, then it seems rather than, you know, I put out my dogma, you put out your dogma, and then, you know, we stay in our own little echo chambers, you know, if, if we have agreed that this is a good way of going about theology, we can maybe point, point out one another's blind spots and critique one another um, in a way that um, maybe would make us more, um, maybe, maybe it would make us uh, quicker to actually talk back and forth with one another than talk at one another, which is what happens uh, a lot of times um, f with some theologians. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is, and as far as the the humble posture thing, you know, when you're putting something out there that I think, you know, that just the mode of of analytic philosophy is, well, you know, I'm making an argument. Somebody is going to critique this argument. It kind of makes you want to be more humble because, you know, that, you know, this is open for critique. That's just kind of the spirit of, of what it is that you're doing. So I think overall, I mean, it's a, it's a good a good way of going about stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think um, so. Jordan, you asked, is this endemic to analytic theology as a project? I think um, I think it is in uh, it owes this bit to the analytic philosophy tradition, at least as how, how it's practiced now. Um, the way Tom McCall talks about it, if I've got his words right, is something like, you know, analytic theology seeks to make its positions maximally refutable. And so you just go into the equation writing anything you're doing or, or, you know, any conference you're attending or any conversation you're entering into in this discussion, you, you're sort of laying bare, here's my ideas and here's where all the weak spots are. So if you're already committed to the idea that you have vulnerabilities, then when they get pointed out, it's not, it's not a, um, you're going to argue about it, but you're not on the, um, you're not, you're not feeling attacked. Uh, mm -hmm. it, like if you, if you walk into a, uh, 
an analytic philosophy conference, for example, and some people I know who've come from other disciplines into those areas, they can't believe what's happening because the whole exercise is somebody's presented some argument and then the the Q&A isn't really filled with a bunch of, oh, this is great. That's great. Thanks for your paper. It's all like, here's like a thousand problems with what you've just said. How do you respond? (laughs) And nobody's offended because that's the expectation is I'm going in here laying bare my sort of like newborn thought and you're taking a dagger and slicing it to bits and that's totally okay. Um, And the analytic theology project has that sensibility built in, which I think just makes um, it, it, it already presupposes that we're okay with being disagreed with. Like Mm -hmm. we sort of assume that's the case. And if I might too, trying to add add to that JT, I think that's a good point. I think that kind of, um, you know, sociological or cultural sort of like observation that you're making there about the analytic philosophical um, sort of scene is, is helpful. And I think another thing that analytic philosophers tend to be able to do is to sort of just like uh, take an argument on the on the grounds in which it is given, even if one disagrees with those grounds. So again, you go to a conference and someone might start a paper like, you know, here's a few definitions and a few stipulations. And then they, they run their paper and, you know, the, the audience can say, I don't buy those definitions. I don't buy those stipulations, but that's fine. I'm going to see what you do with it. I'm going to see how you make your argument. And I'm going to see where that goes. And so they're, you know, one is able to kind of like entertain a position that one disagrees with for the sake of understanding. Is this, you know, reasonable? Is this logical? Is it, is it valid? Is it, is it a worthy argument to be made there? Which I, And I think that's kind of a virtue that allows you to kind of like uh, speak into a domain in which there might be tension or disagreement, but to do so in a, in a manner that's charitable and, as Ken we're saying here, also um, humble. It, didn't some ancient philosopher say something along the lines of, like, it's the mark of wisdom when you can entertain an idea uh, and reject it still? So there is a sense that there's this positive virtue that we've got here where we can seriously enter into someone else's argument and say, yeah, I do reject this, but I can see the moves you're making. And I can agree with these moves. I just don't agree with your initial premise or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so a couple other questions or objections potentially to analytic theology. I've got three here that I want to talk to. Well, maybe two of them are kind of the same. So I'll ask you both of these. I've seen some people worried that analytic theology is potentially rationalistic. And I think this other one goes along with it is analytic theology looks at philosophy as just this neutral tool that they can just pick up and 100% use without molding it to the Christian tradition and kind of shaving off some of the non-Christian aspects. Is that something that analytic theology is beholden to? Are there people who are practicing it that way? What does that look like? Um, yeah, maybe I'll take the second question first, if, if you don't mind, and maybe like, re-ask the other one to, to JT. Um, but uh, again, I, I kind of tend to think that, um, at least when I do analytic theology and a number of the folks that uh, we have in the volume, kind of the primary goal is a theological goal. Like I've, I've, got some, I've got something to say theologically. I've got a doctrine that I want to talk about. I've got some kind of angle on a doctrinal or dogmatic issue that I want to express or argue for. And analytic philosophy is a tool that enables me to do that or, or helps me to do that sort of thing. But 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 insofar as it's a tool, it can only be so useful, it, you know, just like it's, it's a tool in the toolbox. And sometimes you need a more fine grained tool or a different kind of tool to do the particular task that you want to do. Uh, and that's fine. At which point, perhaps analytic philosophy is not necessarily the thing that, you know, you want to utilize. But I also think, and, and you, you might notice that a number of the authors and a number of the folks who practice analytic theology are fairly um, familiar with or, um, you know, see themselves as standing downstream from, say, scholastics, you know, uh, whether this is Aquinas or Scotus or others. Um, but, but there's some sort of indebtedness, I think, to the scholastic approach, the scholastic method um, that analytic theologians tend to have a bit of a, you know, a penchant for. Um, and I think what you see there, specifically with the relation between uh, theology and Aristotelian philosophy, is a willingness to kind of like modify Aristotle or massage Aristotle to say, well, you know, this makes some sense philosophically, but we've got a whole other kind of theological issue, Trinity, Incarnation, Eucharist, or what have you. That's just not the kind of thing that Aristotle was thinking about. And so we've got to like take those categories as best as we can but then, you know, change them in such a way to, to meet the demands of, of, of special revelation or, or church teaching or what have you. And I, my, my, my hunch is that analytic theologians are, are, are want to do that as well. 
that if the philosophical tool is is not somehow going to like fit, like, you know, we're not going to like smash the square theological, you know, peg into a round hole or what have you. It's like, it's, it's the philosophy, at least from my perspective, it's a philosophy that needs to change or needs to be dropped because it's no longer assisting. It's the theology that's driving the conversation and the project. Yeah. So the, I mean, for my part, I think James was pitching the uh, first question to me is that it is, is uh, analytic theology rationalistic to have that right, James. Yeah. <laughs> Take it um, away, dude. Yes. So Jordan, maybe I can ask a, a clarifying question to you. When you hear that objection, what do you take them to mean by that critique? Yeah, I think what I take them to mean is they're looking at something like, say, John Webster's definition of theology, or I guess systematic, it doesn't say it's like theological theology or something along those lines. I yeah. think they're probably going to say, what you're doing is not sufficiently theological. Mm. You're so preoccupied with reason and philosophy that you're really missing the actual the theological work that's going on here. I would imagine that's probably the note that's going on with what I've seen that most often anyway. Some may just say, yeah, you're purely rationalistic. You're not using scripture or tradition or anything. But I think that's a pretty poor chart. I think that's people who haven't read analytic theology at all. Uh, sure. So um, uh, I've, I've taught on this bit uh, a little bit before um, in my own uh, Christian philosophy class here at AU, uh, which is a, really a philosophy for theology class or a analytic theology class. Don't tell anybody. Uh, we don't want anybody knowing we're teaching that here. Um, that's a joke. Anyway, <laughs> um, I, my my uh, my boss, my dean, asked. So we've got these, you know, titles that we're given. You know, when you're hired on and so on. And I'm technically an assistant professor of philosophy. And he, there were some bit where we could sort of modify, you know, how we wanted it to be like on our door or what have you. And I said, well, what if it, it was just assistant professor of analytic theology? He goes, nobody knows what that is. Don't put that on there. <laughs> <laughs> so in any, case, in any case, sorry, Michael, I don't mean to throw you in the bus. It's funny. Um, anyway, uh, are we, uh, are we rationalistic? Are we not doing the proper task of theology? Well, um, I mean, I guess maybe somebody might be uh, who claims that they're an analytic theologian, uh, but I don't have any examples on the top off the top of my head that don't take themselves to be doing uh, the sort of thing that's properly theological. Um, so, can I jump in, JT? I don't know. Yeah. If, yeah. Uh, so I, I think um, you know I, I, when I kind of offer this sort of deflationary account of analytic theology. Yeah. I think this does admit of a particular kind of um, academic work that would not seem very theological. So sure. I think there are at times analytic philosophers that are dealing with um, issues that might be under the of, of the purview of philosophy of religion. Talk mm -hmm. about pure perfect being theology or arguments for God's existence or, or what have you. Um, and I'd be very comfortable in this deflationary account saying that's analytic theology. Oh, it yeah. Maybe it's not the analytic theology that I do as a systematic theologian, but I don't, I'm not inclined to like, you know, draw a hard and fast line to say, well, that, that sort of thing is, is not in under this like, you know, big tent sort of uh, umbrella. But, but I would probably be quick to say but that's not the only way that analytic theology is is being done. There are, are other ways of analytic theology, theology being done that that take more presuppositions in in common with the Websterian or the or the Re the Roman Catholic who has you know a high view of the authority of the Magisterium or what have you um, from for whom special revelation is significant for whom mystical experience is significant for whom um, just mystery in general is significant as well and analytic theology in in that sort of mode is not at all uncomfortable with, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, a, a mysterious end that doesn't maybe satisfy the most rigorous rationalistic uh, expectations on it. And yeah. in that regard, I just sort of see analytic theology as another version of an Anselmian faith-seeking understanding uh, enterprise there. And, and of course, at some point, you know, we're, we're, we're all finite creatures pining after a, an infinite God. And so we have to, like, we hit the mystery button at some point. 
but the Anselmian, and this is a you know long-standing tradition within within Christianity, um, you know, seeks to understand as best as the uh, as the theologian can, and offer uh, an expression of the doctrines as best as they can, knowing that this is you know we we see in part and 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 the whole lot there. Yeah. So um, so I think it's 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 a bit of a caricature, I might say, to think that the analytic theologian is only like this particular kind of philosophy of religion when it's much more diverse and I think much more traditional as well. Yeah, James. Yeah, I forgot. We have slight disagreements there, right? You're much more willing to couch philosophy, philosophy religion in terms of AT than, than maybe I am. So like I have these limit cases where, you know, as planting goes, does God have a nature count as analytic theology? Um, I think I'm probably more inclined to say no. Um, it's more philosophy of religion where it's asking questions about generic claims about God rather than standing in a particular faith tradition and doing the faith-seeking understanding bit, um, whereas I'm guessing, James, you might consider that uh, analytic uh, theology. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would, but I, I would also say that that's probably not the kind of analytic theology that I'm interested in no, doing. that's right, that's right. That's the analytic theology that, that, um, that the anti-rationalist, you know, whatever complaint may be aiming at. Um, I... Uh, yeah. And so in that, at that point, you know, that's just not the way I normally see analytic theology. And even if, as James just said, we include that in analytic theology, which honestly wouldn't really bother me, um, that's certainly not representative of the whole. That, that, to me, tells me immediately that the person who's complaining about it has read like one thing they heard was analytic theology, and that's it. And that's what I usually find with most of the complaints that I hear is that they're just not they're not at all well read in the literature. That's like me, you know, reading one continental theologian, if you like, and going, oh, well, all continental theology is this. And that would just be, well, in a word, ignorant, right? So. Yeah, no, that's right. So what do you take? I've seen this recent critique in writing. It, it This is a quote. It says, it seems more likely that the movement, that being analytic theology, will provide a vehicle for evangelicals to move leftward in their theology while secure in their feeling in the feeling of being part of a movement that is not overly hostile to the faith. Will analytic theology be able to carve a, out a third way between a renewed confessionalism and the ongoing revision of liberal theology? End quote. So this, I, I mean, I can link to it if you guys want. Um, <laughs> Basically, the argument is this analytic theology stuff is just going to take you over to hyper liberal land at some point. As Do you have point, any thoughts on that? What other theology are we talking about? Which which, philo which philosophical uh, background of the of uh, that's un sitting under some theology? So here he, he's making a distinct you know this third way. So he's saying there's you have two options, I guess, renewed confessionalism. Or you have ongoing revision of liberal theology. So, so uh, I, I would I would take it that uh, in this regard, or in this kind of like um, bifurcation, analytic theology is relatively neutral. Um, so I don't think that um, I would take it that analytic theology would lead you either way, or is even kind of like actually opposed to either of those dos domains. There, I mean, I, I think we have plenty of analytic theolo theological examples. Who are confessionally, you know, interested and historically engaged and sort of like sound in in those sorts of areas. And I think we have analytic theologians who are liberal revisionists as well. That's not necessarily anything having to do with analytic theology. It's just that one had a predisposition towards, in this frame, renewed confessionalism or a predisposition towards liberal revisionism, and they found analytic philosophical tools to be helpful to, to, to their doing their their work. So I, I mean, again, I, I guess I think you could be, you know, you could be the most um, you know, a revisionist a Tillichian or, or Schleimacherian that you want to be, or, or you can be the most dogmatic, you know, Roman Catholic. I mean, you know, let yeah. alone a Protestant. You could you could think every single council, everything the Pope says, ex cathedra is the is, you know, is, is the the undeniable truth. And uh, and you could do it analytic theologically. But it's, it, it, that, that's not a starting point. Analytic theology isn't the starting point for either of those those um, uh, uh, those presuppositions that one is taking on from my perspective. Yeah, ironically, it occurs to me that I think I've actually heard the exact opposite argument about the analytic theology movement, namely that this is like a backdoor for like us terrible conservative evangelicals to be introduced into the theological academy. So I don't know. I mean, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to put the name on here cause I don't want to out them. Cause I think this is a pretty bad argument, but it seems pretty popular um, where it's gained at least in the circles that I see has gained some credibility and some serious as a serious objection to analytic theology though. Oh. Obviously I think JT, as you mentioned, I think these are people who haven't read analytic theology. It, and it, it strikes me as the kind of, uh, uh, you know, guilt by association that anyone on either side can say like, well, I don't like this. So it's going to make you more liberal or I don't like this. It's going to make you more conservative or, or what have you. And that's just sort of the bifurcation that ends up being, you know, all too common in both academia and, you know, uh, American culture. Uh, so I, I think it's, to my mind, I'm not quite sure I see that playing out at all in the body of literature that we survey in the book or as we've looked at in the in the literature to this point. Right. I mean, I, I will say that, you know, I think that one of the goals for the for analytic theology is to just try and figure out, you know, um, better ways to think about what's true or even figure out what's true on various matters. And so anytime some I don't want to say any time, but many times I hear complaints about particular methods that are trying to get at what's true as if they're automatically bad or leading somebody away from something. That makes me think that the objector is potentially afraid of what's true. Um, and I think Christianity is true. So I can, I'm willing to go wherever the reason and the evidence take me. I mean, I, mm. I just don't believe it's ever going to get me somewhere uh, false because I think Christianity is true. So, so since since both of you guys are, are practitioners of analytic theology, I'm curious if you think you know there are more serious objections that we that we should really think about. Um, especially since analytic theology is a pretty new. I mean, I understand as you pointed out earlier. You know, you can you can really look back to the scholastic tradition as. Um, kind of what it's rooted in, but um, as far as at least modern theology, it's relatively new. Are there any things that you'd like to see um, be sharpened or changed, or things that you know you think maybe in the analytic theology community um, could be improved uh, as the discipline kind of matures a bit? Um, I keep talking a whole lot. Sorry, but I'm just I'm I am I've been in the middle of uh, reading. Embarrassingly, I'm just now getting around to this book, but Ross Inman's um, Substance and the Fundamentality of the Familiar, which is awesome. And um, he's making a number of points in there that I wish I had written down, but thankfully he did because he's way smarter than me (laughs) and a way better philosopher. But in any case, one of the things he's pointing out here uh, is it's a philosophical point, but the philosophical point has um, implications for how analytic folks do analytic theology, namely that maybe analytic modal uh, conceptions of metaphysics, that is reason, uh, thinking about um, es- essences of things or natures of things only in modal terms or possible world terms and all that stuff, might not be uh, the best way to go about it. Um, and insofar as much of the analytic tradition is dependent on that way of thinking, uh, that might be a criticism. So uh, the reason I bring that up is uh, one of the potential objections that I see to analytic theology is like a substantive one would be that, hey, let's not forget that um, philosophical advancement won't stop with the analytic method of doing philosophy. We can and we hope that things get better and better, just like we're no longer doing just straight up scholastic philosophy. And we're no longer doing analytic philosophy as it was, say, in the early 20th century. Like, we're not logical positivists, right? Eventually, we might come on to some other version of philosophy that's going to get us even better tools. And so we shouldn't have the idea that this is the end-all, be-all of theology. James, you have something you want to add? Yeah, that's a nice point, JT. I appreciate hearing that. And and I guess that, again, kind of comes to my own um, approach to analytic theology as, you know, uh, like uh, my, my students today ask me like, oh, so are you an analytic theologian? And I was kind of like, you know, balk at that. Cause I think, well, no, I'm, I'm a systematic theologian. You know, that, that's kind of what I'm into, but I just kind of have found the analytic philosophical tradition to be helpful 
towards the systematic task. But if it becomes not helpful or, or becomes outmoded or somehow, you know, disproved or what have you, then I think that, that's fine. Like, I'll just I'll find another tool. I'll, I'll find something else that, that's going to be helpful for the theological ends um, that I have. So I suppose that could be one sort of like danger is that one can get too enamored of the method and therefore miss the telos or miss the goal of what the method is for, um, and therefore not be willing to, to change, you might say. Um, but, I, but, I, but I would hope that, uh, you know, those who are inclined theologically uh, would, would not be so, uh, you know, beholden to that sort of a thing. Yeah. So we, we said we weren't going to spend the whole episode talking about objections, so I guess we should, we should transition now. So i um, curious, what do you think you know, what are some areas that you think some of the most interesting work in analytic theology is, is going on? So or maybe this would be a good time to um, you can highlight a few chapters in the in the handbook that you think are particularly interesting or um, just what are some maybe some disciplines that you think are underdeveloped as well as kind of a part two to that question. So how do you pick your favorite child? I mean, I love yeah. all the essays in this in yeah, this yeah. book here, you know, and and, you know, J- JT and I were, you know, we were very intentional um, you know, because when you do theology, you can you can pick all manner of topics. I mean, you could have 10 different handbooks, you know what I mean? And so we tried to pick a number of topics that were um, we tried to pick a selection of topics that were standard topics you might find in typical systematic theologies or handbook to systematic theologies. But we also wanted to pick a few topics that were kind of particularly analytic angles where there'd been some kind of like, you know, robust analytic work done on the topic. And we also wanted to pick some topics that were underexplored in analytic theology as a sort of like motivation or an, an, an invitation to do more work on these particular areas. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'll just, a, a, a selection here, like, you know, you would expect in systematic theology to see an essay on the Trinity. Well, okay, good. We've got an essay on the Trinity. Tom McCall's written a great work and he's written a number of, of, uh, of, of works elsewhere on the Trinity. And so he's got an essay in there on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, we also included, for instance, Lindsay Cleveland's essay on divine aseity and abstract objects. You probably wouldn't find an, a, a topic in on abstract objects in your standard systematic theology. But here's been an area in sort of analytic philosophy of religion, analytic philosophical theology that's that's created a lot of like work lately and, and has been really, you know, an, an area, a hot area. And so we thought it'd be helpful to kind of like introduce people to that particular conversation that's been going on. Or, for instance, I mean, on the other kind of third domain, um, we uh, we asked Samir Yadav to write an essay on analytic theology and, and race. And, and when he accepted, he was like, there's been nothing written in analytic theology and race. And we were like, well, that's why we want you to write it. So here's an opportunity for him to kind of like put something out here as like a, a first go. Or he's written a couple of other um, uh, essays elsewhere to this point uh, on this particularly important topic as, again, kind of an invitation of like, hey, let's do some more analytic theology on this on this underexplored topic as well. And, and so that's a bit of I mean, just a cross section of maybe kind of three uh, three kind of like uh, criteria by which we chose some of the topics we did. Yeah, good. I mean, the only things I would say probably, uh, you know, you uh, maybe left yourself out of the equation on purpose. I don't know. But the entire section on experiences and practices, that sort of thing is, I mean, it's it's growing, which is cool to see. Um, but for example, as far as I know, um, Grace Utanto's uh, essay on baptism is like the only thing in analytic theology on baptism I've ever read. Um, and well, it, it, Terrence Kuno has a little bit in his book in the OSAT series, but it's just like one or two chapters or so. But, but right. yes, that's very, I mean, and, and there's, an, there's an example of like, well, clearly you would have baptism as a topic within a systematic theology. But for whatever reason, that hasn't been an, an issue that's been animating a lot of analytic theology over the last 20 years or so. So, you know, we included in there, and I know Gray did a lot of good work to draw a little bit from from the from the bits of Cunio that Cunio has written, but also kind of be more constructive and, and the like as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's if, especially if you think you know so many, especially in the Protestant tradition, splits precisely along baptistic lines. I mean, you know, I, I like to joke. You know, when somebody tells me they go to a non-denominational church, the first thing I ask them is, "Do they baptize babies?" And if they don't, <laughs> I go, "Well, then you're at a Baptist church." So <laughs> that's that's what sort of marks it out, and that we're not doing a ton of analytic thinking about this. Um, cause I don't think it just is an exegetical matter. I mean, part of the exegetical matter is going to be what's it actually doing. And if we have no, uh, clear anal- analysis of the doctrines, then to me, it seems like what we're doing is just shouting sort of, um, um, 
truth claims at one another without without really evaluating what's going on. So to me, that's like an ex- a new sort of exciting area of research that I hope uh, this volume will will um, uh, cause people to think further about. Yeah, that's good. I mean, JT, I think if I remember right, you're referencing like the King of the Hill meme. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it where it, it is truly, yeah, what 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 denomination are you or something? Well, they say something along those lines. I've seen ser- several iterations where it's like, yeah, we're here. This is the Baptist church um, <laughs> or, or non-denominational or whatever it may be. Yeah, th- this is the Baptist one. Right. So I think you're right, you know, baptism, something that hasn't been a ton in analytic theology, but then you've got the the reverse side as well, stuff that's just not in theology usually. Like I looked at your list of chapters on creation and humans, and I think the first couple, most theological textbooks are going to have, you know, creation next to Hilo, Imago Dei, original sin. But then you get into these other ones, sin and self-deception. You've got race, like you mentioned. You've got disability. You've got gender. You've got animals. These things aren't in most systematic theology textbooks. I think these are extremely important and extremely, I guess, hot topics right now that people want to read about. So to some degree, it's like, hey, come on, the the water's fine. Uh, Dip your toe in and read some, because I think there's some really good, helpful material here. So go ahead. If if I might, I think that it speaks a little bit to kind of like the the ethos that JT and I had when we put this book together. You know, we didn't want to see this book as like the definitive, you know, analytic theological perspective on a topic. Like, a conversation ender. We wanted to see this book as a conversation starter. So if you are working on a, on a topic or a paper on the Trinity, or you're working on a question of, you know, race or disability, as you mentioned there as well, like, here's some resources. Look at this chapter. We've got a super extensive bibliography in the book as well, which we thought was beneficial towards that kind of conversation starting goal there. Like, let's build from what we have here in this book, not like as like, you know, we're trying to like guard things and say, okay, now you can't talk about the Trinity anymore. Like, no, this is a starting place. Yeah, that's good. So for those who want to to really get started with learning more about analytic theology, I would imagine... There's some people here who say, yeah, I get it. I can go get an analytic theology handbook. But what I'm really struggling with is the analytic philosophy aspect. Where, How do I get into that and learn those things? What are the resources? What what places can I go to learn? Maybe there are there institutions that have specifically degrees that are going to help form me in this way. Are there books that I should be referencing or talks online, things like that? What What kind of resources are out there? Uh, well, so as far as books go, um, the, if the analytic philosophy bit is what's throwing people off, um, there's good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is there's some cheap, good books that are out here. I think you guys just interviewed Jamie Dew, right? Well, uh, he's got you know a book with Paul Gould, Philosophy of Christian Introduction, which is great, um, which is an introductory text really in analytic philosophy. That's the good news, and it's cheap. You can get it online. Well, I mean... You, you can get it from Amazon and stuff, uh, paperback and so on. The bad news is uh, analytic philosophy is a, a sort of a jargon-heavy thing. And so immediately when you get into it, if you're not used to thinking in philosophical ways, it does take a minute to um, adapt oneself to the environment. Uh, but that's going to be the case for any technical discipline, really. Like if you want to go study engineering, it's not like you just jump into an engineering book and behold, you understand all the physics and math involved. It's that sort of thing. Um, and what you can do is read this book, or well, I'm holding it up to the camera like y'all can see. Um, the Jamie Dew and Paul Gould text, the Philosophy of Christian Introduction book, read that in tandem with Tom McCall's Analytic Christian Theology, which is another intro text. And that's a pretty good way, you know, as a lay person to get into the field, I think. Um, I mean, of course, now there's, you know, graduate programs that are starting to spec, you know, to get specifically into analytic theology. Uh, you can also go study and do an MDiv or an MA up uh, at TEDS with uh, a man, James, here on the podcast. There's there's those of us fighting the good fight. Oh, of course, you can come here to uh, Anderson University and do our uh, bachelor's degree in uh, Christian studies and major in or concentrate in philosophy and theology. And that's going to be a heavy dose of analytic theology. So. There's resources out there. And of course, you can go overseas if you want to do something really exotic. 
go to St. Andrews, go to the Lagos Institute, or now uh, University of York, uh, or, or how do they pronounce it? York, University of York, <laughs> they do it in the Northern English. <laughs> James, give me the look. Uh, they have a new MA in analytic philosophy there too. So there's 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 places. Anything else to add, James? I'll I'll just put another kind of plus one there for Tom McCall's little book there. It's a it's a pretty accessible book. It's an introductory um, sort of a, a textbook. I, that's what I use as the first book we read in the analytic theology class I teach at at Trinity. Um, I mean, I keep plugging our book. I, I do think that we tried to encourage our authors to write in such a manner that would be accessible to the non-analytic. Uh, and I've had some students read through some of the chapters. Students at, at TEDs, just you know, master's students who read through some of the chapters, and, and you know, they found them accessible. So it's, it's, it's a, you know, it can be challenging, but, but I think, you know, your, your, uh, you know, eager undergrad or, or master's student could pick up our, our TNT Clark handbook here to analytic theology and, and be pretty familiar with the, the chapters or what the chapters are saying there. And then again, you know, d- do deeper dives by means of the bibliographies that are at the end of each chapter and the, the extensive bibliography we have at the end of the, um, you know, at the end of the book as well. So, um, it does take some work, certainly, but you know, good good theology takes some work, no matter what area you're looking at. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, the, the McCall book I've read that I found that really helpful myself. Um, so one last one last question. So I'm a pastor myself, so I kind of want to maybe bring this to the the local church level. I mean, maybe the temptation is to that even if. I believe that analytic theology is a good thing and it should be done. Um, that maybe it doesn't apply to the local church and it doesn't, um, it's not something that maybe could make a difference um, on the ground floor. It's just an academic thing. So what would you say to pastors? Um, you know, what are some ways that pastors can use analytic theology um, to benefit them in their ministry and to benefit um, their congregants? Reverend Arcadi. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do ministry as well. I, I serve at a church, uh, uh, an Anglican church. And so, you know, I, I think about that a lot. Uh, maybe one area of application that I've kind of found personally edifying is just in the realm of homiletics, you know, in the realm of preaching. I've never heard a parishioner say, I loved how unclear your sermon was, or, <laughs> you know, your sermon totally confused me. Thanks so much. I've never heard that, you know, yeah, but but it's it's like, you know, oh, you gave me something clear to think about. You had an idea that I, I understood, you know, you, you you broke it down into such a manner that I could I could grasp the idea that you were trying to put there. And I think that there's a real virtue in clarity uh, in 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 preaching in in our sermons, the way we're communicating the gospel. And I think that a bit of, you know, familiarity and engaging with the kinds of uh, virtues that are displayed in analytic theology can help a preacher to be a clearer thinker and a clearer communicator of the ideas they're seeing God's words as they're trying to communicate it to their congregation. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah, for I mean, for my part, what I've, I mean, I'm uh, not a pastor anymore. Um, I'm going to say, thankfully, don't take that the wrong way, but that's a, <laughs> as a Brandon, I mean, my word, that's <laughs> so much hard work. Uh, in any case, um, yeah, uh, what I have found as a layperson, as a member of a con- you know a congregation, is uh, that being able to think in uh, analytic sorts of ways uh, engenders one to be able to break down big concepts into smaller component parts and sort of think through them, and so and it trains you to or one I should say to be able to ask. Uh, better questions, more clear and precise questions about things, and to be able to entertain questions that people ask and get to the sort of fundamental problem that's going on or the reason that they're asking the question to get clear on what the words they're they're using are trying to express and what's at uh, what's really at issue behind a person's particular question, especially, 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 especially in an American context, at least in my own neck of the woods in the Southeast, where um, people have grown up in a sort of cultural Christianity, and they may not, may not have ever had uh, a a um, an environment wherein they felt comfortable asking questions and entertaining objections to things that they've been told were true. And sometimes, if they don't have a proper sounding board to sort of bounce ideas off, um, people get uh, very worried and disheartened and disillusioned with the Christian faith. And if somebody's trained to think analytically about ideas, that sort of thing 
just isn't all that threatening and they can be patient with their responses. So there's a there's an apologetic component uh, and a real, I think, ministerial component to be able to entertain uh, parishioners difficult questions about uh, Christianity um, that maybe somebody who's not thought about these sorts of things in this sort of way might be less capable of answering. Because, I mean, as I tell my, you know, undergraduate students, um, even in my intro to philosophy course, like Christianity comes baked in with some really difficult ideas. Um, and when somebody uh, comes to a point of maturity where they, they begin reflecting on the truth of those ideas and how they make sense, I think analytic theologians are, are particularly set up to be able to respond to those things in an effective way. Do you guys have any, I'll let you have a shout out if you want for any resources that you have that are going to be forthcoming that you want to plug. Do either of you have anything that you'd want to our listeners to, Hey, go check this out. It'll be out in the next six to 18 months. I do. If you a, don't, that's fine. I do have a paper coming out uh, in perichoresis. It's a special issue on um, Christological anthropology. So I've got a paper coming out in that um, about the status of Christ's body in the tomb, uh, which is, I think, an interesting puzzle case. Uh, but also, um, I'm a series editor for a new series in analytic theology with Rutledge Press. And we have our very first uh, uh, book that's going to drop out there, edited by Johannes Grusel, which is on um, uh, divine sovereignty. and um, there are some other exciting books I can't mention that are coming down the line. So just be on the lookout there through uh, awesome. it's Rutledge studies and analytic and systematic theology. So be on the lookout for that. Cool. James, you got anything? Well, I'll, I'll just um, kind of in the same um, lines we talked about earlier in terms of resources, I'll, I'll just put a little plug in there for the book that Oliver Crisp, uh, Jordan Westling and I co-wrote called the nature and promise of analytic theology. It's a small book published by Brill and, um, Maybe it won't be as applicable to the listeners here. We kind of wanted to do an introduction to AT for more like the academic guild. So if Tom McCall's book is maybe kind of like for the every person or the master's student or whatever, we kind of wanted to write this book for like, um, you know, the, the, the seasoned scholar for whom analytic theology was a new thing. But I think we do try to kind of paint a bit of a picture there for what we think and hope analytic theology might be. So if you kind of want to like, you know, the, the next level reading list when it comes to introductory texts, um, I'll put that plug out there. The Nature and Promise of Analytic Theology, published by Brill. Awesome. And I've read that one and I like that one. So go check oh, it out thank if you, you haven't. So uh, thanks. I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk analytic theology. I think this has been fun. I think it's obviously a growing research program that's out there that I encourage everyone to check out. Uh, if, you, if you don't know anything about it, check out the McCall book. If you're more into it, then, you know, obviously check out the book that they edited here, the handbook. I think it's fantastic. Got a great number of chapters. And for everyone who's been listening, you can check out both of them on Twitter. And I think they've got other, like, probably academia stuff if you're okay with, like, 100 notifications or whatever it may be. So you can check out their stuff there. And we'll make sure to link to it as, as things come out so that you guys can find it. Anyway, you, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.